Hi, this is Kathy St. George. I like to talk about my body. I don't know about my work. I try to do as little of that as possible. I make everyone else look beautiful. In fact, I'm really a man. And you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome yet again to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only part... <laughs> yeah, you know what? I've been doing this for so long, I don't even look at the, the script anymore, which is why I fumbled my way through it. So we're not going to edit this. We're just going to keep going. We're the only podcast to guarantee that if you listen long enough, you, you'll listen to me screw it up, which you've just done. This week, it's episode 486. And tonight, it's another semi-quarantine evening here in Area 51. Uh, yeah, uh, pandemic is uh, slowly, slowly, slowly getting better. Uh, there are enough idiots that still haven't had a shot yet. Uh, so if you're an idiot, get a shot. Um, but tonight in Area 51, it's fun question night. And tonight's fun question is, when is it a First-time author is not a first-time author. And we're going to ask that question of our first-time author who's not a first-time author when we get to introducing the guest this week, which I assume I will do a slightly better job than I did in the last episode when I forgot to introduce the guest. But we'll get to that part after I introduce tonight's co-host, um, who's sitting at the Area 51 help desk and snicker snack bar, it's Commander Cam. Well, hello, Dome. How are you doing tonight? Um, if I could read the script, I'd be better, which I can't do clearly. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, I don't have a script. I just I just go with the flow. I'm just mellow. I'm just I'm just doing really good. You're drunk. I'm also. Uh, well, yes, and I've been free basing the pixie sticks again. <laughs> that that's just pathetic. Hey, it's good stuff. Yeah, I've heard that line before. Absolutely heard that line before. So we've got an author tonight, and I know it's a shock to all of us that we've got an author tonight. But the author that we have tonight is an author that has done like a crap load of books. Uh, and uh, so let's introduce, because we can, uh, Miles Cameron. Miles, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Yes, well, thank it, you, Cam. <laughs> it, I didn't it, forget his name. <laughs> it's great to be here. Uh, I just, I need to introduce myself by saying to a whole bunch of people, I am also Commander Cam. 
because uh, I was a commander in the Navy and my last name's Cameron. And people called me that, so I find it hilarious that there's going to be two of us on this episode. But, you know, it's a very select small group for me. Yes, and uh, there's and two of you. Yes, yeah. congratulations. We're an elite group. That's all I have to say about it. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> so there's Anyway, there's I'm reason. delighted to be here, and thanks for introducing me. Way cool. to go. Yeah, I know. It's always a good start for me because I'm an idiot. And there are many times recently where I've forgotten to introduce the guest. So anyhow, Miles, I introduced you as as a first-time author that's not a first-time author. And the reason that I've gone to such lengths to do this is because you've written over 40 books. True. And yet, this is your first science fiction book. Here I am. Here I am, Lord. Yep. Uh, it's totally true. And I, I can spin off 10 questions of my own, like, why did I wait so long? And so sci-fi was literally my first love. Um, uh, I'm sure everybody listening knows we have a brief conversation before we start. And, you know, I literally launched my entire reading life from Alexander Dubois in one step to Robert Heinlein. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of started with that. I was fascinated to hear your last host say he watched Star Trek in Pakistan. That was the coolest thing, wasn't it? It, it I mean, totally was. And it was a and universality you, that happened there that just kind of blew me away right from the start. I, I, my grandparents had a farm. I won't go into the whole thing, but the the high point of my day was watching Star Trek, uh, which was you know long since in reruns. This is the the seventies, but. Um, yeah, I, I was listening to him and going, wait, that was my childhood and I wasn't in Lahore. <laughs> uh, but um, but very similar pursuits. So why did it take me so long to write a science fiction novel? Uh, I can totally tell this story, but it's not a short story. Oh, go uh, ahead, because we've got like, well, it's the Internet. We've got all the goddamn time in the world. Uh, I'm a huge history nerd. And uh, I studied history in university, and then I went off and I was in the Navy. And when I started writing, I was writing historical stuff because I love history. Uh, that is curious because mostly what I read is science fiction, but I, I love history. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and years ago, and I want to say it was 2015, I was sitting with Alistair Reynolds, who is much bigger in the UK than he is in the States. But you must know Alistair Reynolds. I um, have heard the name, yes. Uh, I was sitting, well, I adore his stuff and I sort of fanboyed on him and went like, so I'm just going to make, there's a seat empty. I'm going to sit next to him. And then, so uh, after I badgered him with questions, he was like, you flew off an aircraft carrier. And I said, yeah. And he said, I've always thought that aircraft carriers were the closest things we have to real starships. And I said, yep, that thought occurred to a bunch of us every day. There was a lot of <laughs> a lot of muttering. And uh, so we had this two hour conversation and my editor, because I also write fantasy novels and I hope that doesn't appall some of your fans. Um, my editor was sitting behind us and Alistair Reynolds said, you know, you should take your carrier life and turn it into a science fiction novel. And Jillian Redfern leaned forward and said, I would buy that. And I just sort of put that away because I was in the middle of writing a different thing because I'm a passionate fan of the Middle Ages and I own suits of armor and I was busy doing the Middle Ages. And then um, then one day the whole thing came to me, a whole book. And um, <clears throat> I said this wasn't a short story. A good friend of mine who runs a ballet school 
once said to me that art makes art and that basically experiencing other people's art helped her make her own art. And I hadn't directly experienced that, but it sounded like a good phrase. And then I was watching a movie and suddenly the whole of this science fiction novel popped into my head. And I, I, I could dissect the process, but I'm not going to right now. I'm just going to say, and it was so powerful that I sat down and wrote it. I probably shouldn't admit this on the air in 46 days. That's amazing because this is a fairly complex novel. And we're talking about the novel, uh, which comes out this month called Artifact Space, uh, which uh, Commander Cam and I just kind of finished uh, last week. And uh, yeah, we had our we had our stops and our gaps with it, but very complex piece of work. Bravo, by the way. Yeah, it was well, very good. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it is both. Uh, absolutely 1970s piece of space opera. And, <laughs> and I think a modern book with a lot of modern ideas, I think, I hope. Um, but curiously, the moment that inspired it was actually a speech from a woman in the movie Little Women. And I grew up, okay, so I grew up on a farm full of old books. So I grew up with Little Women and Three Musketeers and all these books that we used to think of as classics and nobody reads anymore. Um, but yeah, when Amy gives her speech about, uh, I, I realize this is outside of science fiction, but roll with You're me. entitled. Go for it. Um, when Amy, you know, Amy's in Paris and, and I can't even remember the boy's name. The boy says like, oh, you're a great artist. And she looks at him and says, you know what? I'm not a great earnest artist. And you know what that means? That means the rest of my life is marrying some rich guy and having his babies because that's all I get now. And and I was like, ooh. But in the future, maybe that's not all you get. Like anyway, um, uh, and that that was my that was sort of my my moment. But uh, you guys just read it and I don't want to tell you what you thought of it. I'm actually quite curious what you think of it, because the thing I got from listening to you guys in other episodes is that you love classic science fiction and i was trying to write classic science fiction so how did i do well i i think <laughs> one of the things that you 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 probably do know is that in a lot of ways uh you did succeed in, in writing a, a nice piece of of very neoclassical hard science fiction uh which kind of was something like a good sirloin steak for me. <laughs> that sounds positive. Yeah. I'm going to take that as positive. In Please fact, do. a good sir sirloin steak for me is a shout line I could put on a cover. There yep. you go. And there uh, you go. You might want to do that. Uh, however, and that, however, is not to turn it into a bad thing. I can uh, however, it. I got a bunch of questions. Sure. Uh, uh, look, I'm on your show. I will answer almost anything. Almost anything. Good, because uh, I will ask you virtually anything, and you're you're allowed to hold back whatever you want. Um, I want to talk about Marsha Nbara, mm -hmm. because I find her a very compelling character, and because you brought up Heinlein, and I didn't, um, and you brought up Heinlein because Heinlein was one of your seminal authors growing up. Absolutely. I find Marsha and Bara 
one of those characters it could have sat very comfortably in a Heinlein novel in in one of his very early what they called his juvenile novels you know you the italians have a great phrase Bur- you're burying me in flowers uh you're 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 burying me in flowers you couldn't you couldn't be nicer than that uh and that is a little bit deliberate um i i believe that you know i i deliberately stuck some homages uh in in there and i think you could probably pick them out but sure uh she's in many ways uh if you if you could i'm about to say a terrible thing if you could sort of put cj sherry and robert heinlein together um their characters together you'd get uh mark and borrow like sure uh and that's totally intentional i'm not trying to copy anyone but i and i, I don't up, think you did no i grew, I grew up i grew up on the that stuff i grew up on on moon is a harsh mistress and on merchanter's luck and somewhere between those two is is sort of where i was aiming and um yeah she's um it's funny that you opened the broadcast by saying I'm an idiot dome and pardon me for pointing this out, but what does, <laughs> what does she say about every 50 lines? Oh yeah. I'm an idiot. Like and, I, it's, and, and she believes it of herself while also believing in herself. And that was a trick to write, but also fun. Also things I might've muttered myself from time to time. So at what point in the, in the, birthing process of this book did marcia come alive for you and how did you come alive so again uh you know i'm a storyteller and i probably talk too much but i i'm trying not to give you really long answers no give me the answer you want to give me it's fine go for okay it. so twice in my life once in a book called killer of men which is about ancient greece and now in artifact space it's not like i'm writing it's like somebody is telling me this story. It just hit me and it was all there. There was no thinking this book out. It's very hard to describe because I've written 43 books and none of them have been like pulling teeth. I love to write. It's my favorite thing in the universe, but some of them are definitely harder than others. Let's just leave it there. Twice in my life, I guess this is what the Greeks meant by the muses. It's like somebody said, here, have the here, let me download the file into your brain so i can't really tell you how i thought out her character like i said i was sitting in a movie theater with my family remember how we used to do that before covid um uh i do we, i miss it dearly we went to see the movie little women i was reading a book on the great ships of venice on these giant galleys that went to England and Alexandria and what impact they had on everything from politics to world trade. And it was a, it was a definitely seminal book. Um, but I thought I was using it as research for a historical I was writing. And I'm sitting in this movie theater watching this brilliant movie because I love Little Women and the movie was brilliant. And suddenly it was like a Greek god just put it in my brain. Here's the USB key, plug it into your ear, kid there's the book. So I apologize. I can't tell you how it happened. It just burst there. And how, how do you then take that moment of, of divine intervention 
and slowly put it to to page to electron sit in front of your computer sit in front of a, a typewriter whatever it is you do and turn it into turn it into artifact space uh so i learned to write from jesuits and from the u.s navy and from my dad so my dad was a fairly successful career writer um and uh, i'm sure my dad would have preferred me to start with him but in some ways he was the polishing machine um but one thing I learned pretty early on is that you should just write. So I have a, I, I have a schedule. I have a, a system. I sit down every day nice. at, at nine in the morning and I read everything I wrote yesterday and I do a pretty thorough edit to it. And then I know exactly where I am by the time I'm done editing. And then I launch into my writing day. And I write until two in the afternoon. Once in a while, I've been talking about this with a bunch of authors lately, so pardon me, but artists, and I'm not always sure I'm an artist, but let's leave that go for a moment. Artists and athletes talk about being in the zone or being in a fugue. There's all kinds of different ways of expressing it, but once in a while, the magic is there, and let's just call it the magic. And mm -hmm. then you have a 8,000 word day or a 5,000 word day. I definitely know when I'm in that zone and I don't stop at two o'clock, but otherwise I stop at two o'clock. So I, I work nine to two and I do it every day and there's no excuses because I learned that from the military. Like <laughs> there's writer's block is something people who have un enough money tell themselves. Oops. Did I say that out loud? Yeah, um, you did, but it's okay. <laughs> my it's my okay. dad used to say most people could get over writer's block if their parents cut off their allowance, which I know sounds nasty. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just do it every day. So with artifact space, that's what you wanted to know about um, because literally it was all there. So I wrote an outline for myself. I want you to think like I didn't have a contract for this book and I never write unless I'm under contract because this is my living. I'm a full-time writer. I'm a full-time author. It's my only job. So this is a rare moment for me. And I sat down 45 days in a row, 46 days in a row, and had to work off of this hasty outline written at 11 o'clock at night after coming home from a movie theater. And it was during our first COVID lockdown. So, you know, I wrote, I wrote the outline, and but it just stayed in my head. I really never looked at the outline again. Um, I did get bewildered by the number of characters. I was going to say that outline, you didn't really refer to it much during this con? No, it because I knew what the book was about. And I don't want to spoiler too much, but the it's really about Marka or Marsha, and I don't care because I haven't decided myself. So you I'm decide. sorry. No, I, no, you you decide. Every reader can decide for themselves. Yeah, I, I'm going with Marsha because I, I've 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 I'll tell you right now. I have a bond with her at a number of levels. And one of the bonds that I have with her is her love of the martial arts. And those scenes in the dojo with her where she just becomes a little bit otherworldly and gives 
the commander there a chance to see something else. If they were, they're, they're, yeah, hey, there's, there's. Uh, so I love martial arts too. Uh, uh, I, I, I. There are so many stories I could tell you right now. Well, go ahead. Hey, this is your show, not mine. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not about my life. This is about yours. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I teach martial arts, and one of my favorite experiences in life literally it's almost priestly is having some person who thinks they're not athletic in fact it's always best when they've just told me oh i'm not athletic oh i i, I i'm not good at sports demonstrate that what they weren't good at was convincing the coach they could play football because actually uh, i'm thinking of a particular person but it's happened to me a bunch of times you watch this person and go like you have the hand-eye coordination that olympic athletes will want to have how did you not play sports um you were a goth kid weren't you you just didn't do that whole world and that's fine but now you're on the floor with a long sword in your hand and you only wanted to do this because you play D and you watched game of thrones but we finally lured you into the world of athletics and look at you you're really good at this and then watching them flower and grow and go oh i, I i've never been good at these sorts of things uh, it's a story for another time and another day but there became a point during that somewhere in the first hundred pages or so when she's first introduced into that dojo that just kind of grabbed a cord inside me uh, at so many levels. And there, there are points at which you've done this over and over again within the book in the story of, of this, this uh, what commander Cam and I came to refer to as little orphan Annie joins the space Corps. Yeah, no, that's, no, a good, that's a good shout line. I like it. Good job. Well, no, that wasn't that wasn't precisely what I called it was the Merchant Space Marines. But yeah, okay, yes. close okay. the Merchant Space Marines. And, you know, gentlemen, I have to say I, I love you for both of those, because um, in the UK, people keep saying military science fiction. And I wince. No, not at all. I was trying no. to turn away from. I mean, I actually love Jerry Purnell's military science fiction. I probably couldn't be bettered. I think it's fantastic. I like, I don't, I'm not against it, but, but I that's not what that's what I was writing. No. Yeah. Not at all. This, this is definitely, because you definitely get the feel merchant is just as much a part of what these people are as the fact that they are able to defend themselves. It is the merchant space machines. These are people that, you know, if you think about the original definition of Marines, these were the people on the boat that defended the boats. And could go, you know, ship to ship combat and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I'm just roughly going over that. But, you know, th that's where I was thinking about it. It's like these are literally the people that defend these vast, you know, I almost looked at them as like the, like that tanker that was caught in the Suez Canal. They're just massive floating things that ship goods from one end of the universe to the other. And then these are the people that make sure it gets there safely. And yep. that's 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 how I envisioned this whole thing. Yeah. Well, one of the many seminal bits of this book is, I, I, and I won't go into detail because people are still alive, but a buddy of mine in the military had graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy. And while she was waiting for her regular Navy commission, she went as a fourth mate on an uh, American oiler going to Kuwait. And by the time she got to the Straits of Hormuz, she was in charge. 
because people had heart attacks and various other things, and she was the skipper. So there she is, 24 years old, commanding a thousand foot long oiler that was attacked by pirates. And they fought him off with AK 47s, like merchant marine crews do all over the world all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then she came back to have the US Navy tell her that she couldn't command a ship at sea because she was a girl, which may have <laughs> something to do with my writing my book. But um, no, uh, like, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to slag the US Navy, which is an organization I think very highly of, but um, it was a moment in time. And uh, yeah, and, you know, and I've known a lot of merchant marine sailors. And also, I happen to be a huge fan of medieval Venice. And, you know, medieval Venice, they um, they won the Battle of Lepanto, but they mostly were interested in getting their goods sold. And and I think that that is a very interesting idea. And, I you know, science fiction, we're trying to look at the future, right? We're trying to say, like, how how could the human race evolve in outer space? And I I'll be honest, as a military vet, I have a real trouble with war in space. Like space is unimaginably vast. And nobody should be shooting each other unless certain conditions are met. And you guys both used the word that I wanted to hear. They're defending themselves. These yeah. are merchants. Yeah. And yeah. Just, like, just like 18th century merchant ships, sure, they went armed because there were bad people out there. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's what they do. You know, what they do is trade. They're trying to hold all these new... and. If when book two, Deep Black, comes out, you'll see how vast the spread, the diaspora of the human race is. It's so vast that, you know, that they're losing track of the far edge, which is a Poole Anderson idea that I loved in the Dominic Flandry books. And I didn't think anyone's ever done enough with. I love the idea that the edge is moving so fast that the, the you know, quote unquote, Terran Empire, I don't have a Terran Empire, can't keep up. Um, you know, and I like that idea, but like what would hold it all together? And as the medieval sphere expanded and it expanded pretty fast and ended up in America, it was people like the Venetians that were holding all the little parts together for a while. And I thought that trade would be more interesting than war, which is why every time they say military science fiction, I go, no, oh, come on. No. Now, if, 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 if somebody, you know, wants to review this book and thinks of this as uh, military science fiction, they've totally missed the mark. Totally missed the mark. They didn't read the book. I'd even go so far as to say, because seriously, I mean, that was the first thing I really took away from this when she joined this was, you know, on top of her learning how to fly those little crafts in there, she, the, everything was about, and we're going to move this product over here and we're going to deal with these people at this port. And this person, I, I love some of the scenes where literally she has to deal with people that want to sell her stuff on the sly and have her, you know, sell it for them. And then they, they'll both get a cut. And I'm just going, this is perfect. This is perfect. You know, is what you would expect from trade and from, you know, from just any age, you know, this is how trade always worked. You know, it's like making those deals, cutting those, you know, little and on, deals in the back room. And honestly, Cam, uh, when I was in Africa with the U.S. Navy, my partner, uh, my military partner and I, we were sort of law, I won't go into detail, but we were sort of law enforcement. Um, I had those experiences. I had them alive. And, and sometimes... Weirdly, my partner, she was quite right, was like, 
these people make stuff we can't buy hand beautiful handmade furniture um not something you immediately think of when you think of africa but uh east africa like kenya and tanzania they have incredible craftsmanship and you know like we were trying to explain to them how containerized freight were anyway yes trade it's part of everything uh and you guys may or may not know this but um, at least in the old days, because things have changed, and I'm old now. When a <laughs> when an aircraft carrier left a Pacific port or even the Mediterranean, often in the hangar bay there were things that weren't supposed to be in hangar bays, uh, <laughs> like cars and motorcycles and a lot of Persian rugs from the Gulf War. Um, and other things. I, I hope I'm not getting myself or your audience in trouble, but um, you don't think of an aircraft carrier as a trade ship, right? But I remember my carrier coming back from the Persian Gulf, and there was a lot of stuff on that carrier. And it was a warship. It wasn't, we weren't pretending, we weren't a trade ship. And yet, and yet we had done a lot of trade. A lot of US dollars had been spent on a lot of nice things. Yeah. Well, in, in the course of that last soliloquy, <laughs> uh, you've got me pegged. You you did answer the one question that I really wanted answered, which was, there is a second book. Oh yeah, uh, there's. Uh, so, uh, wow, I really don't want to talk about the publishing industry. Long and short, uh, I'm writing a second book. Somebody has to buy it. Um, we'll see we live in an age where the bean counters will count how many how good my sales are and then they'll decide whether they want to buy a second book i have and a four-letter word for the bean counters um, and that four-letter word and i understand that that's how you make your living but that four-letter word is also predicated on uh how well uh the people who really want to read what you have written find out about it which is why uh, we want to have you on enough times so that people get to understand what it is they're missing if they don't read this book. So this, quite frankly, is one hell of a good book. Yeah. So, Dome, I got to say, I, I'm, I'm going to go on another soliloquy. Watch sure, out. Sure, go ahead. But, but uh, I love to write. And here's the thing. And, you know, I've been in enough panels at cons that – I know that this is not a stock answer, but I will write book two at least, even if it's just the three of us reading it, because <laughs> I want to know I want to know how it comes out. I I can't stop myself like I'm writing it right now. Uh, and I'm going to assume from the way that the pickup in the UK is going, that actually there will be a publisher for book two because uh, the, the media play seems to be pretty strong. But just going to say, um, I have a website that I put out some freeware on. Uh, I just write stuff sometimes and I give it away. Call me crazy. I have good royalties from a whole bunch of books and I can't stop writing. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, as long as you don't mind writing a free, reading a free PDF on my website, I promise you all three books will get written. Um, and you know, I say this because I'm 59 years old and I'm at an age where I can pretty much write anything I want. So I'll just, I'll get through it. Um, that said, though, uh, 
I'm a little sad that we no longer live in the world of the five book contract, because actually I'd like to write a ton of these. And part of that is because uh, it's, it's weird, but it's not as beautiful as the initial shock of having the goddess Athena hand me the whole book. But I keep thinking of, of follow-on plots and spin-offs. And this doesn't usually happen to me. I keep going like, oh, I could develop a completely separate character to show how New Texas works. Or, you know, like, whatever. Um, yeah, I'll finish, the, I'll finish the trilogy. But I but won't see, spoiler it but, for you. But here's the, here's the thing. In looking at your past books and your past series, this is how you write you find uh, a concept, a system, uh, and then you start to delve into it and really work inside it and really work with it. And what I think you found here is your next rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, to <laughs> it's totally true. And, you know, uh, wow. And I want to be really careful not to spoiler this because it's very important to the concept. But... Pivotal to the, let's say, the plot arc is a couple are a couple of alien races. There sure are, because you, you introduced about five or six really interesting ones along the way. And we and, can talk about this afterwards, but and you can't God miss, damn, they were fun. You can't miss that there seems to be a genocidal murder mystery embedded somewhere. Uh-huh. And that's um, a huge fan of of murder mysteries on top of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, that was part of what really drew me into this book was that there was a definite feel of a mystery beat that was trying to be solved, almost like a, a almost like one of those you know thrillers, you know, where it's like, okay, who's who's really doing this and you know trying to solve it? Oh yeah, they, they, so, they, there's layers here. So I won't hide that the alternate protagonist Dorcas is sort of benedict cumberbatch playing <laughs> sherlock holmes like and he's the murder mystery solver he's not the combat guy he's not the hero um because uh, i'm playing some games with gender roles as most people see them which i would point out robert heinlein also did but my like, oh my didn't he um i i i thought it would be fun to have you know like the mystery solver isn't the sword swinger. Uh, he's he's doing a different role, and uh, and that's fun. But yeah, so overall arc, it's really a murder mystery. It's a genocide mystery. Like uh, a whole lot of aliens died about the time human beings were figuring out how fire worked, and now the crew of this one ship need to solve the mystery right now before they do the wrong thing and that's really the over arc um and you really only start getting to that in the last pages of of artifact space um and you know i'm, I'm sorry one soliloquy after another but i was actually already writing the book when uh, a random and you used the word rabbit hole and god knows that is exactly how my research life works i am the, the king of rabbit holes and I was wondering about going like, well, I know a lot about what happens in this, but I believe in science fiction. I don't believe in BS fiction. I believe in science fiction. So I at least want my space travel to work for me. 
and I'm a hard audience sometimes. So I, I was diving down various, very science e uh, articles about quantum theory, and I was listening to a lot of YouTube's on quantum theory, and somebody used the term relic particles, and I'm like, oh, what's a relic particle? <laughs> that you're playing my song. There's a, yeah, and that like the idea that um that there were particles left over from the first milliseconds of the big bang which believe it or not is an actual thing that's out there in science oh yeah oh yeah um, and that there was a layer to the space-time continuum that they not i called artifact space and i'm like you can't make this stuff up this is better than anything i could make up i'm gonna roll with artifact space um because I'm a huge archaeology fan, and in my other career, as you guys must have noticed, I mostly write about ancient Greece. So there's something about artifact space that captures the entirety of everything I think. Thus the name of the space. ship, thus the name of whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you 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 tie up some lovely little bows for us along the way. Well, I hope so. You know, like the the ship both is and isn't my aircraft carrier, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, the ship is meant to be old. And I think I appeal to everyone listening who's ever been in the Navy or the Coast Guard. Um, my squadron skipper used to joke that our airframes were older than our pilots. And that was literally true. Most of our S3 Vikings were built in 65, 66, and most of our pilots were, you know, younger than I am now. Um, and the technologies that, you know, remember during the Gulf War, people would go like, oh, the American war machine, so high tech. We, those of us who were there were like, yeah, we're using eight track tapes to track enemy radars. <laughs> that, that is the height of your American military technology. That eight-track tape I just slipped into the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. Anyway, um, uh, a lot of it was old, and a lot of it smelled bad, and things live in the bottom of aircraft carriers. And it's been done in good science fiction movies, you know. And it, it's actually something I don't know if you guys have ever watched Star Trek Lower Decks, which is a sort of modern cartoon Star Trek. Yeah, wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully. Uh, biting satire. I I love it because um, somebody who writes it knows a lot more about the way militaries work than maybe some of the people who wrote the original Star Trek um, and uh, and officers and stuff. But I also love it because like you know something is growing deep down there and there are spaces nobody goes and you know anyway I yeah I like all of that. Uh, and I've, uh, do you guys remember Red Dwarf? Oh, yeah. Oh, very well. Yes. yes. So love, lovely uh, 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 British series. So lovely before series. before we started, I, I might have mentioned that I met Roger Zelazny at a con in uh, at a science fiction fantasy con in 78. Well, we then sat with Roger Zelazny to watch a Red Dwarf episode as we used to at cons that he hadn't seen before. And so I got to sit and listen to him praise how just laughing his ass off and having a great time. I don't know. It's a very formative moment because I was like, wow, this is a human being, not, not a, not a 12 foot tall human. And he likes red dwarf, but 
uh, anyway, I digress. It's another soliloquy. But <laughs> the giant ship, right? The giant ship. It's huge. And you can get lost in it. And alien races can grow inside the ship. The cat yes. comes to mind. Um, and I, I loved that. And I thought that's a really good idea. And also my experience of the aircraft carrier is if you want to go a long way in a ship, it needs to be really, really big. Yep. Really big, really big. 10 kilometers long. Sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, and I, I, I won't pretend that I don't adore Alistair Reynolds. Uh, Reynolds' work consistently blows me away, possibly because he's a real life modern astrophysicist. Um, and, you know, he, he also has eight kilometer long ships. Um, and it was his science fiction that taught me that there was a reason to have something be at least moderately, uh, to have a, a big ship be at least what we would call, I don't know what word to use, hydrodynamic, like capable of passing through monatomic hydrogen, because when you pass through 0.2 or 0.3 C, the monatomic hydrogen is passing over your hull pretty quickly. I had not realized that before reading Alistair Reynolds. And that's why the ships are sword shaped. I admit it, the ships were always shaped like giant swords. I that was where I started. <laughs> I was just finding an excuse. Well, as Ben Bova once dramatically said, science fiction when it's at its best is history that just hasn't been written yet. And I in reading artifact space, you get that kind of a chill. And oh, that's God. what marks really, really good science fiction for me. You're so. making me so happy. Cause that's <laughs> no, because that's how I like, that's definitely how I feel when I read Ben Bova, but um, that's what I want. Like I wanted to feel real. In, in my infinite silliness, what I was trying to say was, uh, it's a really cool book. Bless you. And uh, Cam and I both had a lot of fun with it. And we uh, tend to bounce back uh, comments as we're reading it. We had a lot of fun reading it. We, we truly enjoyed it. I'm glad we're going for a second in the series. I'm glad you fell down this rabbit hole. And I'm glad uh, you had the chance to come on the show. Our, our guest tonight has been uh, a first-time science fiction author, but not a first-time author. Uh, and man, does it show in this book. Miles Cameron, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Uh, this was an enormous pleasure. You guys are fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because you appear to have enjoyed my book, but uh, this was great. Thanks for having me. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible. 
because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody.